overall, it was this huge sense of relief in finding um, myself as part of a community and, and ultimately it opened dialogues within my family and with friends. I mean, Erica and I started Suffering the Silence exclusively because we were able to start talking about what it was that we had been through at the same time. And you had been really close during that time and didn't talk to each other about what you guys no. were going through, which no. is wild. We would say like, oh my God, this happened in Wicked the Musical, you know, like, which is normal for teenage sure. girls, right? But we had this other thing that we could have really bonded over that we didn't. Erica's always been incredibly open about her journey. So it was probably my fault. <laughs> but I've been the opposite of open. But I think that in terms of the roller coaster, it's it's been the biggest roller coaster of my life. Um, and I've learned more about myself and more about my family dynamics, my relationships than I ever had before. Um, but it also has been really challenging because when I speak to people and when I meet people, there is so much pain and there is so much grief and there is so much um, hardship. And I feel it when I talk to people yeah. and it, I can feel it in my body. And I, I keep thinking about it when I leave and it keeps me up at night. If I hear a story about somebody who is really having a hard time and learning how to cope with that piece of this has been a struggle for me. Hey there, and welcome to In Sickness and In Health, a podcast about the intersections with chronic illness, disability, healthcare, and mortality. My name is Kara Gale. I'm not a doctor or a medical professional. I'm just a person and a patient who really wants to talk about this stuff more. Nothing said on this show should ever be considered medical advice. If you're experiencing a medical issue, please seek qualified medical help. I know the system sucks, but I wish you a lot of luck. Every person is different, even within disease groups, so none of my guests should ever be regarded as official representatives or spokespersons for their conditions. Please respect their very personal choices, and unless they ask for it, please don't make suggestions about treatments or lifestyle changes. Unsolicited medical advice is never not annoying. In today's episode, I talk to Ali Cashel, author and co-founder of Suffering the Silence. We talk about her book, the current state of the complicated issues related to Lyme disease, writing, certainty, and the stress of living with Lyme disease and all of the baggage that comes with it. If you missed last week's episode, I talked to Suffering the Silence co-founder, Erica Lupinacci, about her health advocacy, media portrayal of chronic illness and disability, challenges she'll face as an actor with a disability, doing everything right and still being sick, and traveling with an unpredictable body. Allie and Erica started their online community and photo project to connect with other people experiencing chronic illness after realizing that as best friends, they weren't even talking to each other about their illnesses. The book, Suffering the Silence, Chronic Lyme Disease in an Age of Denial, grew out of Allie's undergraduate thesis. She decided to interview others whose lives had been affected by Lyme disease and found that she was not alone in the terrifying and confusing experience she'd had in trying to get treatment for the symptoms she'd experienced. The book includes a foreword by Dr. Bernard Raxlin, who has treated Allie and members of her family for the disease. She opens the book with a brief description of Lyme and why it's become so controversial in a section titled The Aches and Pains of Daily Living. Allie writes, quote, Lyme disease afflicts millions of people worldwide. 
It is transmitted via the bacterium Borrelia burgdorferi, transferred to humans and other mammals through the bites of infected blackleg ticks. The standard symptoms of Lyme disease include headache, fever, joint stiffness, and the infamous bullseye rash. For 80 to 90% of infected individuals, this disease is manageable, sufficiently treated by two to six weeks of antibiotic therapy recommended by both the Infectious Disease Society of America and the Centers for Disease Control. But 10 to 20% of those afflicted experience a significantly more debilitating litany of symptoms for an often extended period of time. In these cases, the treatment covered by health insurance is insufficient. Though crippling symptoms persist, the doctors who cannot or choose not to diagnose their condition often explain away unnerving persistent symptoms as the quote-unquote aches and pains of daily living. This dismissive approach can leave those suffering without an advocate at a time of perhaps their most desperate need. As a result, they are forced to live shadow lives, plagued with disabling symptoms, and yet often dismissed by the medical community and by our society as being mentally rather than physically ill, end quote. From this gap in our knowledge, the clash of ideas between chronic Lyme disease, post-treatment Lyme syndrome, and medically unexplained symptoms spring forth. The question of whether or not chronic Lyme disease exists has become highly contentious for a number of reasons. Ali continues, quote, Debate over the existence of chronic Lyme disease adds a layer of hardship to what is already a painful, confusing experience. The psychological experience of living with a disease many do not speak of and that some don't even believe in can at times equal its physical weight. Much of this debate concerns the lack of ongoing research, which limits both the quality and quantity of information available to doctors and patients. In preparation for a June 2012 special on Lyme disease, producers at WBUR, Boston's NPR station, sought out many doctors to speak on the topic. In the end, only three agreed to speak, two of them only anonymously. Many other doctors never returned repeated phone calls. One doctor who declined cited the environment as simply too volatile for him to state his opinion. Kathleen McInerney, a producer at Morning Edition, told WBUR's Common Health blog she could not think of another medical field where it is more difficult to find a doctor to speak on the record. Doctors who ally themselves with the chronic Lyme population fear media appearances because such can make them targets of both medical disciplinary review boards and the insurance industry. Insurance companies work strenuously to revoke the medical licenses of doctors reputed as treating chronic Lyme, quote-unquote Lyme literate doctors, often called LLMDs, by asking their patients to file malpractice suits against them. In another approach, insurance companies scour medical records for small inconsistencies in note-taking or record-keeping, bringing doctors to court on charges apparently separate from their Lyme treatments. Though some states have passed laws to prohibit this, insurance companies regularly drop patients whose treatment exceeds the IDSA recommendations. The lack of dialogue about chronic Lyme perpetuates the belief that Lyme disease does not pose a significant risk to the population. And because so few write or speak about the disease, patients are often disinclined to speak about it themselves. As such, the conversation ends before it begins. End quote. Lyme disease is complicated for all of these reasons. 
some things we'll talk about more in this episode, more that Ali wrote about in the book, and even more reasons still. As with many chronic conditions, every Lyme disease story is different. Some are more straightforward than others, most often when the disease is caught early and treated right away. Others are more complicated. Both Ali and I have Lyme disease stories that are a lot more complicated than our medical system has the framework to deal with. In 2008, Ali's story and my own converge in the vortex of persistent symptoms after Lyme disease treatment. At that time, she was eight years into dealing with it, now facing her first huge symptom flare, which brought with it a bunch of scary new neurological symptoms. For me, I was treated with Lyme disease in 2008 after being sick for at least five months. I have since been dealing with long-term symptoms that have been complicated by the underlying genetic condition I didn't know I had until six years after my run-in with Lyme disease. But that running gave me a crash course in the neuropathic pain I've experienced every day to varying degrees since, and acted like gasoline on the fire of pre-existing heart and neck heart and neck problems, and increased chronic fatigue. It's been suggested to me that I might still have Lyme disease, while I've also been assured by others that I most certainly do not. Because the testing isn't particularly helpful and the total lack of knowledge around Lyme and my other medical conditions and my genome, I may never know what exactly has transpired here. And I think I have accepted that. I don't know. Grief is weird. Check back with me in a month. I may feel totally different. In episode 24 of the podcast, Chelsea talked about her own confusion about her recent Lyme diagnosis, and I discussed my own experience with it more. I also talked about it, probably most in depth, on my episode of the Lyme Voice podcast. On the episode page, I'll have links to these episodes, more about Lyme disease and the confusion surrounding it, and links to the Suffering the Silence photo project Allie produced with last week's guest, Erica, their online community, and the book which I have to say I really loved. Ali did an amazing job of juggling the aspects of memoir, patient testimonials, and the current state of affairs in a very balanced and human way. You do not need to have or have had or treat Lyme disease to connect with this book. But if it's something that that you have had experience with, it is particularly infuriating, complicated, and at the same time comforting. I found much of it spoke directly to so many of the issues we talk about here on this podcast and is highly relevant to so many of the conversations we have about healthcare, trauma, and the experience of connecting with others who have had to suffer the same silence of stigmatization and illness. On the episode page, I will also link to episode 21 with Heather, where we talk about post-traumatic stress symptoms resulting from our experiences with chronic illness, which is something that Allie writes about in the book and we touch on a bit in this episode. The world is terrible and terrifying, and so is Lyme disease, but at least there are things that you can do to better protect yourself from contracting it. Like most diseases, the best outcomes happen with prevention and early detection and treatment. The ticks that carry Lyme disease are found most often in the Northeast and Midwestern United States, but as climate changes, their reach is spreading. These things are about the size of a poppy seed, which is pretty ridiculous and makes them really difficult to spot. 
but check yourself before you wreck yourself. After being outside, check yourself for ticks. Don't forget your hairline and your crotch. And have somebody check your back if you can. They also recommend not walking around barefoot, but loose toes in the grass is like one of the best feelings in the world, so I can't really get behind that one. If you do go hiking or something, wear high socks, if not pants, and use bug spray, the kind that actually works on ticks. If nothing else, at least spray your hiking boots or shoes. If you can, throw your clothes in the wash as soon as you get home and take a hot shower. Don't forget to check your kids and your pets for ticks as well, because you know how much they like to roll in gross things. And if you do find a tick, get rid of it as soon as possible, and then pay attention. If you find yourself getting sick with an unexpected fever, weird rash, and of course the classic bullseye, get yourself to a doctor as soon as possible. Like Allie and I talk about in this episode, it's not always as simple as that, but we hope that with better physician education and research, it can at least be slightly more simple. But if you do find a tick, don't totally freak out. Not all ticks carry Lyme, and the actual disease transmission happens only after the tick has been attached for a while. So just try and get at them as soon as possible. But Lyme disease is also not the only disease that is transmitted by these things as Allie talked about a bit in this episode, so it's a good idea to just try and avoid picking one up at all, if you can. There will be plenty of links and more about all of this stuff on the show page. As always, find resources and more from us at insicknesspod.com and on social media at insicknesspod. Find the Suffering the Silence online community at sufferingthesilence.com, on Instagram and Facebook at Suffering the Silence, on Twitter at STS Together, and get the book where books are sold. And I hope you enjoy this episode. since the book came out uh you're coming off of Lyme disease awareness month like what's up yeah so I've been very lucky right after the book came out in September um I think Erica mentioned this on a previous episode actually we did a tour about a a 10-week tour around the United States and into the UK and it was amazing to get to meet people in so many different places of the world I had got to go to California and I'd never been to California before um and so it was It was very exciting to meet other patients, especially because so much of this for me has become about building community and becoming a part of a community that I never, ever identified as a part of. Mm-hmm. Um, and that trip really sort of grounded that for me in an amazing way. And since then, I've been very lucky to continue to have booked speaking gigs um, fairly regularly after the tour ended up. So been doing some traveling mostly still around the northeast though I did get to go out to California for a Bay Area Lyme speaker series uh, I think it was in April which was a fabulous experience I've started work with Global Lyme Alliance on their junior board which ultimately is probably going to change its name but it's been wonderful to get to work with that organization as well and sort of trying to come to terms with how to now take this energy and take this momentum and give it some more shape so that the focus can be less about me talking about the book, which I love talking about and is very fun to talk about, but how can, how can this become a, a bigger project that serves a bigger audience than just readers of Suffering the Silence? Mm-hmm. So you obviously had to do a lot of research for the book. 
um, as far as like how far, and I, I use the term rabbit hole to describe Lyme disease and the issues surrounding it a lot. Um, did you go a little nuts when you were researching? Because you can go pretty far down that hole. You can find yourself in some dodgy places, um, which I did, and definitely pursued many paths in terms of like thinking about government and thinking about um, just, it's very easy to get angry, right? Mm -hmm. That's something that I see all the time in the Lyme community. A lot of people are really angry and they feel like and they should be. And they should be, 100%. Yeah. And, they, and, and they feel like something has been done to them, right, by some bigger abstract organization, which is something I felt for my whole life in many ways. But that wasn't so productive. I, when, when I would get stuck in those places, I realized, what am I accomplishing here other than just sort of fueling my anger and fueling my own grief? Um, and so when I found myself stuck in those rabbit holes, I think that's like a really good way of describing them, um, Thankfully, for, for a majority of the research, I had the support of professors at Bard, and they were able to sort of be like, I'll maybe turn your focus somewhere else. Um, but for the most part, I knew that I wanted to talk about, I knew that I wanted it to be about people. And so this idea of the political conversation, for example, or even the discrepancy around whether or not Lyme exists, I was able to ground that in conversations with actual human beings. Mm -hmm and focus more on the way that they were thinking about it and their work with it rather than finding myself lost in, in sort of the maze of why they think it or, or how they justify the thought. Because when you get stuck there, I mean, I could find you a paper that says one thing and another paper from an equally respectable journal that says exactly the opposite. That's, yeah. They're both peer-reviewed and they're both, yeah. you know, just, just as legitimate as they possibly could be. And so when you get stuck there it's incredibly interesting, but it's very hard to move through it. Right. Um, and the way I found through it was through the people themselves who I was talking to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it's, it's, it's so much easier to blame some sort of entity for what you've experienced and not experienced and, and like the whole ex experience. How many times can I say that <laughs> word in one sentence? I say it like seven times a day. Yeah. More than that. Um, as opposed to just like, this is a really shitty situation that doesn't have answers. It doesn't like, there's no reason this happened to me. Right. But that's such a hard, I mean, that's an impossible thing to think as well, right? Mm -hmm. Because as we go through the process of searching for diagnosis, of searching for the right treatment, there are so many forks that you can take in the road that let's say you make a decision to see one doctor because they could get you in earlier than the next mm -hmm. doctor, right? And it turns out that that doctor is not Lyme literate. And maybe if you had waited three more weeks, that doctor would have been. But then what would have happened to you in that three weeks, right. you know? So I think in my own experience, I found myself judging a lot of those decisions. Um, but again, we can't do that, right? Because in, in our lives, things just ha they happen. Mm -hmm. um, and as they happen to you, it's sort of like, how do you survive through it? How do you get through it? And what do you learn from it? Which is such a silly, I get mad at myself when I say that, right? Because I don't want anybody to feel like they have to look at these horrible illness experiences in a positive way because they right. don't have to. But I think we can learn something from it. If, we, if it's about people in our lives or what relationships are healthy for us and what relationships are not, about our relationship with our bodies, whatever it is. There's some something that you can get out of it, even if it's a bad thing. I have to say, like, in doing this podcast, it's been... And even before I did the podcast, when I started having conversations that made me realize that I 
this could be a thing. Doing this podcast and having these so many of these conversations, which is really disheartening that like doesn't matter what the diagnosis is. Girl has strange symptoms. Girl goes to the doctor, gets told she's crazy, and like on and on and on. But as disheartening as that is, it actually made me feel better about my own experience that it like it wasn't personal and this didn't happen to me because I'm a bad person or you know fill in the blank with whatever uh like reason you want to insert there yeah um I was able to like let go of a lot of hurt person feelings I guess me too that's been such a huge that resonates with me so much because what happened mostly for me is that I lost trust in my own perception of myself. I was, I I was not sure that the things that I was feeling were, were real. I mean, to this day, when I'm at the doctor's office and they say, scale of one to 10, how much pain are you in? I have no way of answering that question because I I feel like relative to what? Mm -hmm. Relative to what I imagine a healthy person feels like relative to my worst pain I've ever felt. I'm, I'm so, I've become so obsessed with grounding everything so that I can prove it to be true. Um, Which is another rabbit hole. Exactly. Um, Especially when so much of this is about our own experience of it, and every person's experience is going to be different. Um, And realizing that it wasn't just me who was crazy. I mean, I'm crazy in a million ways, right? But not just specifically that. It wasn't me um, making up an illness. But also coming to terms with the fact that my psychology and my emotional experience of illness plays a huge role. Yeah, absolutely. And I spent such a, such a long time trying to push those two things away from each other mm-hmm. that I was never going to be able to really get better. And it's only really been an accepting, and this is a horrible thing to have to accept, but accepting that this happens to many women mm-hmm. and then it's not just about me. Mm-hmm. Um, that's helped a lot, I think. It really yeah. resonated when you said that. Yeah, and I have dealt with that as well as of like pushing away mental health issues and mental health help in order to say like, no, what I'm experiencing is real, but like kind of dealing with that. So there's a there's a quote that I highlighted from the book because it it really speaks to exactly what you're you're talking about here. Uh, The conviction of so many experts in their fields ultimately shattered my faith in the validity of my own perspective. Things that once had felt certain became terrifyingly subjective. Fact became fiction. Infectious disease became fabrication. I could no longer speak honestly to my doctors or my family, terrified that my perspective would be dismissed as delusional. This breakdown of trust was the most traumatic aspect of my experience. And the reason that that really stood out to me is you at one point hesitated to compare your reaction to this experience to uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, but PTSD comes up several times in the book, either from other patients talking about it or from doctors saying, I've seen this happen to many patients and this was their reaction. Um, So it might be different than what occurs after like a large traumatic event, but I do, like with this podcast, I kind of want to carve out a space to talk about those experiences as a result of the long and traumatic and dehumanizing experiences in the medical field, interpersonally, and then even just within your own body, like the horror of living in a body like that. Yeah, Um, Yeah, I'm glad that you picked that out because that's a, a, a piece of the book that was really, really hard to write about. Mm-hmm. Um, and the aspect of PTSD that I do think a lot about is that I have um, sort of whole chunks of that year that are just black. Mm-hmm. There's there's no memory. And um, 
in fact, putting together certain parts of, of the book and, and parts of um, the memoir section of the book. A lot of it was built out of talking to people who were there, who, who remember better than, than I remember. And as I think about it even today and having gone through this whole process of putting it out in the world and now it's not a secret anymore and everybody knows it, what part of my not rem remembering is a result of the disease and what part of it is a result of the trauma? And how are those two things sort of, un like, you can't, you can't break them apart in yeah. some way. For example, that flare of neurological symptoms that I, I speak about in that section of the book was likely caused by stress in my life. And I don't know if I would have referred to that year as traumatic without this additional burden. Um, but stress played a major role in the onset of those symptoms. Yeah. Um, and just for people who didn't read the book, can you just explain kind of like what happened? In sure. Um, so I was a, about to be a senior in high school. I'm the oldest of five kids and my family's in, incredibly close. And we were living in Westchester County, New York, about an hour north of New York City. And my dad got a job in Boston and my whole family was going to pick up and move to Boston. But I was going to stay in New York to finish my senior year of high school. So my family moved that summer. My boyfriend went to college. Um, all of our furniture was moved out of the house that I had grown up in, which was this huge stone um, house on top of a hill. So it was the type of place that the rooms were big enough that once everything was gone, you could feel the emptiness almost in, in the space. So I was so aware of everyone's absence. Um, and I started school that year. And within the first eight weeks of the school year, um, I was struggling to speak. I couldn't read. I had been in six car accidents. Um, everything sort of fell apart very, very quickly. And I had doctors attribute that neurological presentation as a direct psychological response to my parents leaving. And so I was told, well, more accurately, my mother was told that I was psychologically regressing to the point of infancy. Um, and so my behavior, I couldn't drive a car, I couldn't write, I couldn't read. That was a psychological representation of me wanting my parents to take better care of me. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, I went from being a straight-A student, um, I dropped out of my senior play. These, it was not in line with my psychological experience to date. Um, but I think that and this is something else that I talk a lot about and think a lot about, that authority that is represented by sort of mainstream medicine, head of pediatrics, head of infectious disease, part of me was like, well, maybe they're right, oh, you yeah, know? Of course. You get told you're crazy enough times. You start to believe it, especially when those people are figures of authority who are supposed to be world-renowned, best in their field, you know, like all of these things that like, they're, well, they they know what they're talking about. Right. I must be a crazy person. Right. And they're way smarter than me and they're older than me. I mean, I'm a 17-year-old girl who can hardly make out a sentence at this point, you know? So who am I to say, no, that's not true? Um, and I think with the Lyme conversation, that, that it's only further complicated because blame was placed on my parents for having um, pursued aggressive treatment in the past for the Lyme. Um, and we were dismissed almost immediately in the first visit after seeing my medical history. The job of a head of pediatrics um, should be to figure out what is wrong. And I've had this conversation with a number of doctors in the past. If, if a 17-year-old if a girl presents with 
aggressive neurological symptoms. You should pursue a psychological route, sure. but that should not be the only route that's pursued. Exactly. And I think that the reason for it in many cases was because of my history with Lyme um, and with other tick-borne disease. And that's very upsetting to me because of, of that stigma that's attached to it and that sort of prejudice that's atta attached to it. Um, and I don't want that for other people. <laughs> me neither. Uh, yeah, I mean, what's really interesting is the certainty with which these doctors, and, and this also resonates with, um, in the book, you talk to like one doctor who's part of the chronic Lyme doesn't exist camp, two researchers that are like researching upstream from whether or not chronic Lyme actually exists, and then the third person that you spoke to was a doctor who does treat chronic Lyme and, and published a book and stuff. Um, and so, even with them, and then also in your experience with the doctors in Boston, and you know, probably other doctors that you saw elsewhere, is is the certainty with which they are sure that they are correct right. about what they're they're thinking. And like my experience as a patient, and I actually did have Lyme disease in two thousand eight, and that was like a whole thing. Um, but my experience as a patient, both with Lyme and with everything else that I've dealt with, has been nothing but uncertainty. Right. And that to me is just so wild that they could be so certain that they're right. And yet, I, I don't know, it just, it really blows my mind. Well, that's one of the amazing things about the whole Lyme conversation mm -hmm. is the certainty with which people speak about it yeah. and the emotion that people speak about it. Um, as soon as Lyme disease comes up with, regardless of who I'm talking to, somehow the politics around it enter into the conversation within the first minute or two minutes of the conversation. It's impossible to avoid. And one of my actually favorite parts of the entire research process for the book was um, I was meeting with Dr. Shapiro, who's one of the authors of the IDSA Lyme guidelines, who does not believe that chronic Lyme disease is um, a real infection. Mm -hmm. And just for people to, who don't know, the IDSA is the Infectious Disease Society of America. They're responsible for writing diagnostic and treatment guidelines for various infectious diseases. Thank you. Um, so I met with him and we're having this whole conversation about um, Lyme and what is Lyme and what's not Lyme. And at the end of the conversation, I asked him, have you ever thought that maybe you would be wrong? And he so cleanly was like, no, I haven't. Mm -hmm. I think that I'm wrong every single day. Every day. I think that I'm wrong when I get on the train and I say, hmm, should I have waited for the next train because this one is too crowded? Right. I, that's a horrible parallel, right? But, yeah. but, that, but I think that the conversation has become so polarized that we have to say either I'm 100% certain or I'm 100% not certain. Whereas the whole sort of beauty of medicine as a, as a field of study is that we don't know and we don't understand everything that there is to understand about our bodies and our brains and it's this we're like babies we have no like i something that has come up again and again for me is that like no one has a sense of medical history and like just how new modern medicine right? is oh my god absolutely i mean penicillin when when did we start yeah. using penicillin in like the 20th century mm -hmm. and so that's what been something that's just completely amazed me. And I think that that's something that we have to break down. We need to start saying we don't know. We need to start having physicians say, you know what? I'm not sure that this is the right case for me. I'm going to pass you on to somebody else. And, and have that not be something that is shameful or something that is wrong. Um, 
we don't know. We're learning. And there's always somebody who's going to know more than us. And if we don't feel like we can talk to each other about it, we're never going to figure out what the right answer is. Um, I think about that a lot, like in politics, even. Mm-hmm. If, if, we, if we pull so far away from each other that we can't even talk to the other side, where are we going to get? We're not going to get anywhere. We're just going to keep justifying ourselves mm-hmm. and saying, I'm right, I'm right, pat myself on the back. And further pushing each other apart. Exactly. It's not productive. So we have to find a way to build dialogues with populations of people who we don't understand. In the Lyme world, you have to bring those people together. But I think that in almost all conversations, if you start talking to people who are different than you and who think of something in a very different way, you're going to learn more about how you think about it, but you're also going to learn more about sort of the complexities of maybe things that you didn't, hadn't thought of before. Yeah, definitely. And I, I mean, something that kept coming up for me while I was reading was like, it doesn't fucking matter whether chronic Lyme exists. Of course it does. And I'm going to like circle back to that. But like, ultimately, you know, this is just one of hundreds of chronic diseases that don't get enough research, that don't get enough attention, that doctors aren't educated on and refuse to educate themselves on. One in 10 Americans lives with a rare disease. And yet, you know, when I was going through the process of trying to get diagnosed with a quote unquote rare disease that may actually not be that rare, um, you know, I got told repeatedly, you couldn't possibly have that because it's rare, but like that, it just, it boggles my mind. Um, So, like, it doesn't really matter what it is. We need to be taking care of patients. We need to be treating patients. While at the same time, it does actually really matter because if you treat the wrong problem, you're not, you know, that might cause more problems than it's worth. That we see a lot in terms of misdiagnosis or people Mm -hmm. who have been diagnosed with something else. For example, steroid treatment, mm-hmm. if you have a spirochetal disease, is one of the worst things that can, you can give to somebody. But when people's immune systems start freaking out, as they do when you have a long-term infection, oftentimes we're diagnosed with autoimmune diseases, mm-hmm. things like that. Regular treatment is steroids. Um, and people get very, very sick. Um, and so if in that zone of the misdiagnosis world, it does matter that you have the right diagnosis. Right. And that's why we, do, we need to find tests that... Um, justify whether or not we're actually infected. We have we don't have that really for Lyme and for tick-borne disease that is um, at the rate that we would want it to be, at the success rate that we would want it to be. Um, but to your point, I also think that for the patients themselves, the actual diagnosis is fairly irrelevant, right? Mm-hmm. What the patient wants to do is get their quality of life back, is go back to school, go back to work, um, start talking again, you know, <laughs> get out of their wheelchair. Um, and so I think I've, I've had conversations with patients who have said, you know, if I'm crazy, please, please let that be what it is, you know, so that I can take my antipsychotic and go back to my life. Mm-hmm. Um, but unfortunately, for many cases, it's, it's more complicated than that. Right. And even, even when you do have the right diagnosis, it's more complicated of course, than always, that. always, right? It's always more complicated than that. Yeah. To circle back around to like the trauma and PTSD and stuff um, and certainty, you talk about quote unquote medically unexplained symptoms. that's a that's a category that a lot of people fall into it's an important category because of what we were talking about earlier in terms of accepting that there are things that we don't know the problem with the category is that it leaves patients sort of slipping through cracks Mm -hmm. if there's no physical cause of a presentation of symptoms that we we can point to, you can't get referred to a certain doctor. You can't get referred to somebody who can help you get better. So that's my biggest fear with that 
sort of loop, um, group of, of the way that we categorize this infection in many cases. Right. And, you know, back to medical history, medically unexplained that we know of, you know, and every day we're making new discoveries. There was just a study that was published recently that uh, Dysautonomia International helped to fund on POTS patients. It was a small cohort. So like on its own, it doesn't really mean anything, but like 86% of the patients tested positive for muscarinic receptor antibodies. We just don't test, like there's so many things that a, we don't know exist. B, you know, we think are rare or that they're not worth, uh, or we think that, you know, it's not worth testing because it's rare, you know, and any number of things or, or simply that doctors just don't know to run the test. And so, you know, they, they run their battery of tests that they do. And then they say, well, I can't find anything wrong with you, so you must be fine, which is bananas. And I got that over and over and over again. And when doctors did finally start taking me seriously, and I had to get really sick for that to happen, um, the new doctors I was seeing were kind of appalled that some very basic tests hadn't been run. And that, you know, these the my original doctor's my second and third generation doctors like didn't do their due diligence and still decided that a psychiatric diagnosis was the right one, even though they're not even psychiatrists. Right, exactly. That's something that's amazing that I see all the time is that not psychologists make psychiatric diagnoses. Um, and in the Lyme conversation in particular, one of the things I had a meeting just this morning where we were talking about this. And, and one of the things that's amazing is that in endemic areas in Long Island, in Westchester County, general practitioners are not testing for Lyme or not even considering Lyme as an option. When somebody comes in and says, oh, my joints hurt, I've had vertigo, they say, ah, oh, you have the flu, go right. home. You're stressed out. You're stressed out. And we're talking about the fastest growing vector-borne disease in probably the world, in definitely the U.S., North America. That we know of. That we know of. Truly endemic areas. Mm-hmm. Truly endemic areas for the disease, and we don't have doctors testing for it. Yeah, I mean, it's... It- the same thing happened to me in 2008. I went to the doctor. Like, I well, at first I didn't actually realize that I was sick because I was so used to feeling crappy anyway because I have all this underlying stuff. So I just kept saying, oh, I'm stressed out. Oh, I just started this new job. Oh, I just started school again. Um, and then when I did finally go to the doctor, I went through two or three appointments with a primary care provider who never tested me for Lyme, never did most of the tests. Um, I had to like argue with her to give me the test. Now, this was in Northern New Jersey, another endemic Endemic. area. You know, I had been camping upstate in New Paltz, endemic area. Like there's literally no reason that I wouldn't have Lyme disease at that point because I had the joint pain. I had the the fucked up neck. I had like all of these like, like sure, Lyme symptoms are kind of, you know, vague and amorphous and whatever, but like symptoms in history tells the whole story, almost the whole story there, right? And so this was in 2008. In 2009, the CDC said that there were 30,000 new cases every year. And then in, what, 2013, they said, oh, JK, it's actually 10 times that amount. 300,000 new cases every year, and doctors in endemic areas are still not testing for it. Right. And and to put that in comparison, that's six times more cases than we see of HIV in mm-hmm. the United States. Um, and we're all thinking about HIV. Um I mean, debatable, debatable, sure. But like if you're when you go to the get your gynecologist pap smear, you know, that's something that likely will come up in your conversation. Mm -hmm. Um, 
I think, unless that's just me. <laughs> it should come it up should. in the conversation. Okay, there we go. Um, but I think that the, the it, it's in many ways it's an awareness issue because people think if you don't have the bullseye rash, mm-hmm. you don't which have it. fewer than fifty percent of people see. Right. And, and I, fewer than 50% of people actually even get. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that it's even further complicated by the issue that in many cases, I, I would venture to say most, it's not only Lyme that people get. Mm-hmm. Um, they've identified, I think, 14 different okay. infections that are carried by ticks in just this area alone. Um, I have had Lyme, Babesia, Bartonella, Auriclea. That's four different diseases, all of which you're going to treat in different ways. And when you have, if, if I have strep and pneumonia at the same time, I'm going to be much sicker right. than if I just had strep. Mm-hmm. And if I get strep and I don't treat it properly and I stay sick, You're gonna get way sicker. I'm going to get really sick and no one's going to say, mm, I think you should go see a therapist. Actually, I know people... Oh, <laughs> I'm probably, like, the worst person to talk to this about. Um, There's at least, like, one person that I've talked to that has been through, like, even these really common diseases, which that you can test for. That they still are falling through the cracks. Right. It's an idea. But I think think in in general, when we think about infection, and, and there are always going to be situations where this is not the case, but I think as a culture and as a society, when we think about infection, if you are treated and you don't get better, the, the thought is not normally, well, you are better. <laughs> the thought is normally, hmm, Why is what, what's going on here? Right. And that, that closed door on the conversation is mm-hmm. what is so problematic about this. Yeah. Because especially, I mean, you know, and I've run into this with Lyme and with, you know, several of the other conditions that I have that like, you're told you don't have this thing. So then you're like, well, shit, now what, you know, and now you go through a whole ringer of other doctors and other tests that like, God, it stresses me out so much. Um, (laughs) I had like, as I was reading the book, I kept having to like put it down because I would just like burst into tears because it just hit so close to home, both like with my own experience with Lyme and so many of these other conditions. And And that's something that I really wanted is that, um, or didn't want, but was thinking about Mm -hmm. is that the patient experience of Lyme is unique because of all of these politics that surround it and, um, it's easy to talk about just Lyme, but so much of what I've experienced, what my friends have experienced, it's all the same dialogue over mm-hmm. and over. It's the same story. Um, I think you said this earlier in our conversation. It, it, it's We share so much, and that is a curse, but it's right. also a total blessing oh, sure. to realize, wow, there are so many people who understand and can empathize with what I've been through, especially when for so long I was convinced that no one could mm-hmm. empathize or understand with what I had been right. through. Yeah, it's ridiculous. We've talked a bit about the controversy, um, but you know, given the controversial nature of the subject and writing about that controversy at length, what kind of pushback have you gotten? Have you gotten any? Have you gotten any feedback that was good or unexpected? Like, what has the response been? Yeah. Um, so when I was first putting it together, there was a lot of concern, um, about aligning myself so aggressively with one side of Mm -hmm. the conversation, um, concern about whether or not I would receive calls from 
different organizations, which patients who I've talked to have had that happen to, concern about Dr. Raxlin, who has treated me and wrote the forward for the book, and whether or not he would be targeted in any way. Um, and that's why I worked as hard as I did to make sure that all of the patients in the book would stay completely anonymous and that there'd be no way of figuring out who they were. Um, but shockingly, it's been radio silence. I've, I've heard nothing, um, and which is amazing to me. Yeah, that is really Because amazing. people who I know and people who I talk to all the time have received calls from, you know, sending a letter to their senator or whatever it is, which I've done. Um, I was just in D.C. a couple of weeks ago for a, a forum on Lyme policy and governmental oversight. So I've, I've been extremely vocal um, on one side of the conversation and have been surprised to not get any aggressive pushback so far. Um, but what I, I hope is that the way that I, I always try to approach the situation is focused very much on how subjective our experience of everything is. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it doesn't, that doesn't make it not real, but the way that we articulate things is going to be very different in every case because of our life experience, because of our illness experiences, whatever it is. Um, and so maybe that's what keeps me safe. Um, and I, I try very hard to make sure that when somebody else's view is represented, it's their view and not mine. And, mm -hmm. um, but yeah, no, so far so good. I'm, I'm, I'm always sort of waiting for somebody to call me and say, shut up, but yeah, no, I <laughs> no feel the exact same so way about so. the podcast. <laughs> Um, so I'm, I'm just going to sort of keep on shouting until tell someone tells me to stop. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> so um, the writing process is always difficult, especially with anything that contains any aspect of memoir writing. Uh, what did your emotional roller coaster look like? Ooh. <laughs> um, this entire process from when I first started writing the book or even thinking about the book to this interview with you right now and being really open and public about it has been probably the most formative and emotional and intense thing I've done in my whole life. And when I first started this, I was hoping that I could do anything to avoid thinking about what I had gone through. I was actively lying to people in my life um, because I didn't want to give sort of the whole truth and the whole pain of what yeah. it is. That... It's such a, I, I have this problem too, that it's like such a long story. I'm like, I don't really know where to start. And I have to give you like several basic biology lessons before we can right. even talk about it. I mean, we were not talking about it in my family. Um, we had not ad addressed it in many ways. And I had not been able to psychologically process the experience from, and not just my experience senior year, but the experience as a whole, and, and honestly, the continued experience. Mm -hmm. And when I first started, I had a professor who I was working very closely with um, said, just write a little bit about it. And I'm, I'm staring at the computer screen, and I literally cannot make my fingers move. Um, and I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll try, I'll try, hand, I'll take some scrap paper out, and I'll, I'll try writing on stare at it blank because the actual idea of of writing the sentence down you know i have this was terrible i mean it was terrifying and so i decided okay i i'm done i can't write about myself i can write about other people mm -hmm. i definitely can do that 
I was living in Dutchess County, which is another hugely endemic area. I think in your book, you even say it has the highest rates of infection. So. Um, so I'm like, probably no one wants to talk to me. I was convinced that no one would want to talk to me, but I'll just try. I'll put mm-hmm. out a flyer in a doctor's office. I was overwhelmed mm-hmm. with people who were like, I'd be happy to share your, my story. And as soon as I started going to these people's homes and meeting these people for coffee and going to support groups, which was something that I literally had never done, um, it was this incredible realization that I was not alone and that I was not, that my experience was not unique. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's what was so scary to me was it was like, maybe I am this sort of like weird, crazy girl and I come from this weird family and maybe it's all just wrapped up in itself. And I figured out as soon as I started talking to other people, wow, it's not us. Um, It's a much bigger problem than just us. And I also found for the first time that as soon as I told my story and I would go to meetings and at the beginning I would share a sentence or two and then maybe at the next meeting I would I would share a little bit more and regardless of how much I felt able to share without fail I was met with unbelievable empathy and understanding and a desire to to help me come to terms with it mm-hmm. and I was I realized that I was part of this community of of fighters and of people who were there for each other and there was a lot of anger and a lot of things that didn't always resonate with me. Um, But overall, it was this huge sense of relief in finding um, myself as part of a community and and ultimately open dialogues within my family and with friends. I mean, Erica and I started Suffering the Silence exclusively because we were able to start talking about what it was that we had been through at the same time. And you had been really close during that time and didn't talk to each other about what you guys were going through, which is wild. We would say like, oh my God, Wicked. This happened in Wicked the Musical. You know, like we were, we were, which is normal for teenage girls, right? But we had this other thing that we could have really bonded over that we didn't. Um, Erica's always been incredibly open about her journey. um, So it was probably my fault. (laughs) But I've been the opposite of open. But I think that in terms of the roller coaster, but it's it's been the biggest roller coaster of my life, um, and I've learned more about myself and more about my family dynamics, my relationships, than I ever had before. Um, but it also has been really challenging because when I speak to people and when I meet people, there is so much pain and there is so much grief and there is so much um, hardship, and I feel it when I talk to people yeah. and it, I can feel it in my body and I, I keep thinking about it when I leave and it keeps me up at night if I hear a story about somebody who is really having a hard time and learning how to cope with that piece of this has been a struggle for me and for a little while I was sort of like put it in a box put it in a cabinet and walk away and you know that's just over there and I don't have to think about it and that's something I've done. If you read the book, you'll see I do that all the time <laughs> in my life. Um, and I'm learning that that's not good. Um, yeah. But I have to, it's a hard thing to break. That's a hard habit to break, especially yeah. when you let it out of the cabinet. And, you know, I, I, I feel it so intensely. And I mean, I could burst into tears right, right now. Like I, there is so much pain in the world. And 
I hear about a lot of it a lot, and mm -hmm. that's intense. <laughs> it's extraordinarily intense. <laughs> I'm and sure I, you know that feeling as well. I do, and I was getting kind of choked up while you were talking because I've had the same experience and like learning to sit with that and to, oh my God, just the sheer volume of these stories has been really hard for me to deal with because, you know, like I started having these conversations before the podcast and found that like everyone that I talked to had a story to tell. And then I started the podcast and everyone that I've had on the show has multiple stories to tell. And then I started hearing from listeners and I'm like, Oh God, <sighs> like I get so overwhelmed by it sometimes yeah. because there's just so much of it. But I also, I want it. Like mm -hmm. I want to hear it. I, yeah. I, in, as, as, as hard as it is, it, it's also just this amazing energy and and when you bring those people together and those stories together it's really hard to stop listening and mm -hmm. it's really hard to ignore and I'm incredibly talented with denial and I can't do it anymore because I'm hearing it so much and I think that's good mm -hmm. and I think that sometimes discomfort and um these this type of feeling is a really important thing to have happen and it with the illness world in general I think we need to make people feel a little bit uncomfortable and mm -hmm. they need to know that healthy life is not necessarily normal life. No. And at any moment, at any moment, you can get very disabled. Yes. And so we need to start thinking of that differently, I think, mm -hmm. as a culture. Um, and hopefully we'll do that with lots of different things. Yeah. And not just stillness. Yeah. Anything I'm not supposed to talk about, I'm like, who wants to talk about this? Uh, I'm very fun to hang out with. Um, so you, you mentioned and you, you talk about it extensively in the book that your family didn't talk about this, even though several of your family members had Lyme disease and your, your dad dealt with it very significantly. You guys are Irish, right? Yeah, we are. Irish Catholic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think that's where that whole denial, put it in a box and, and shove it away thing goes. I'm very familiar with that. Um, and you actually interviewed your dad for the book. And I'm, I'm curious, what was that interview like? How has your relationship changed since then? Yeah. So my dad was always, we've always been sort of thick as thieves. Um, and he was always a big part of, both of my parents were always a huge part of my journey with Lyme, much more so than my siblings were. Um, my mom sat with me at every IV. Um, my dad changed the dressing on my pick. Um, we had a sort of bubble between the three of us um, that I didn't let anyone else in, to the point that like I wasn't down for a nurse to come do their job and come to my house and change my dressing. I needed it to be my dad. Um, but even with that, most of those things were very action oriented. Mm -hmm. It was like, um, my mom and I would sit for IV and she was there every single time. She never missed it, but we never talked about IV, right? We right. would talk about the play or we would talk about TV or we would talk about my siblings or boys or whoever it was. Right. Um, and I think that that was our way of creating normalcy. Mm -hmm. Um, and also, I mean, I'm the oldest of five, as I think I mentioned, and we're all within seven years of each other. Um, so the reality of the situation was 
there wasn't a lot of space for something really traumatic or, you know, there wasn't a lot of time to talk about things extensively. And so we just sort of kept going mm-hmm. and it just sort of became part of the routine. You know, we would, we would drop the boys off at elementary school and then we'd drop everybody else off at middle school and then we'd go to the doctor and then drive back to high school. Like that's basically, it was just, that was part of the, part of the morning routine. And that all vaguely worked until, um, our bubble became shattered, until it got shattered and Mm -hmm. other people had to come in and other people told us that we were wrong and other people questioned our way of doing things, which is all very important. Um, but once it, it shattered, it was very hard to breach the subject again because we all experienced trauma. It wasn't just me who experienced Mm -hmm. trauma. And I I think about this a lot in terms of caregivers is something we don't talk about that much with illness. But my mother was told she was a bad parent for having taken me to a Lyme doctor. Right. And told that repeatedly. Repeatedly. And still, she, even though she started to question it for herself, she still pursued things that people were telling her, no, stop, don't do it. Because she had some gut feeling or whatever it is, right? That's what being a parent is, I think, I've been told. Um, but without her and without my dad, again, I said it already, I wouldn't be here. And letting people into that dynamic which feels sacred and feels like um, the most intimate thing uh, has been really challenging. And I knew that I had to interview my dad. Um, And I knew that I needed to better understand his experience of Lyme disease, not just his as it related to my own, but him as a person um, who lived with this disease, as I was doing with many other people, but I was terrified to have the conversation. I put it off, I put it off, I put it off. He was almost the last person who I interviewed. Um, and I was scared for him to read it. I was scared for my, my siblings to read it. Um, why? I'm not sure I could even put words to it, but it's this issue of like having that intimacy broken and um, like coming out almost. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is a weird thing to say. Uh, maybe, but it's something that comes up a lot and that, you know, coming out narratives as far as like sexuality and, and that sort of stuff goes, uh, parallel, you know, disability narratives and illness narratives pretty closely. Obviously they're not the same thing. Like, you know, there's plenty of differences, but I myself have felt that way. I've talked to many other people who feel, who see like a, a shared ground there. Yeah. And I think also one of the things that's been challenging about it is that part of the beauty of that support, and I see this a lot with my boyfriend who I'm, who I'm still with, same guy, um, who's been through this whole thing. Part of the beauty of the support is that sometimes it's not vocal. Like Mm -hmm. sometimes it's not a matter of sitting down and talking through how we feel and talking through, you know, what it means for my future and what it means for the dynamics of our family. And sometimes it's just like, acknowledging that it it, exi- it exists mm-hmm. or not sometimes I don't even want it to be acknowledged I just right. want it to be I, I'm doing uh, b12 injections right now and I really can't give myself an injection so in the morning my boyfriend pinches my butt and sticks a needle in, 
And one of the most beautiful things about it is that we don't really have to talk about it. Mm -hmm. It just sort of happens. I know he's there to do it. Um, he's not making fun of me for being scared. It, it's just this like nice, silent thing. And I, the book is called Suffering the Silence, right? Silence is a huge problem mm -hmm. in the illness world. And it's almost like it's a character in the book. Right. But it's also something that I think saved me. It, it, I don't remember my adolescence, even though I was at the doctor almost every single day and was at a level pain, whatever it was at the time, every day. I don't remember it as traumatic. I don't remember it as, as particularly painful. I don't remember illness until I started to revisit it as something that was a huge part of it. And I think the reason for that is that silence in some way. And um, I treasure that. I treasure that the, the way that I think about my relationship with my siblings, for example, is not that they think of me as somebody who was like sick and weak and in the doctor all the time, which mm -hmm. maybe that was the reality. But the, the way we talked about it, it wasn't there. And so we were able to just have these like normal older sister, younger brother relationships. Um, and the silence, I think, was a huge part of that. Yeah. Um, so that um, flair that you were talking about when you went to Boston and your parents had moved and everything, that was in 2008, right? 2008? Yes. That was 2008. So just context-wise in the culture, that was when the housing crisis started to go. And your dad works in banking. So I'm curious, like, <laughs> did that at all play a yeah, role? In, yeah. yeah. Um, my dad had worked at Bear Stearns. Oh. And... Okay. Um, so when it came time to find another job, especially a job as he was excited about, um, there was no question that he was, you know, going to take it and, and move into that new position. So the idea of sort of sitting and hanging around in New York was not totally an option for us. Um, but we've been very fortunate and very lucky to um, be able to afford treatments and out-of-network doctors and thing that, things that many people who have been infected with Lyme do not have access to. Um, and I am very aware and think about all the time how lucky I am to have had the support of my family, especially financially, um, because I'm not sure that I would be sitting here in this room and having this conversation with you had I not had that. And when I think about families who don't have access to the things that I have had access to, um, and when I talk to those families and talk to those patients, the conversation is often so much different, uh, so much more different than mm -hmm. it, it is for me because it, it's dire in many, in many situations. Not that mine was not a seriously bad situation, but I always had that support in some mm -hmm. sense and some people don't. Yeah. And I mean, if you don't have the resources to pursue alternative treatments or treatments with doctors who don't take insurance and stuff like right. that, you hit a what like... You hit a wall. Yeah. Um, and it becomes, in many cases, then about pain management and treating symptoms and things like that, which you never get better from mm -hmm. um, if, if that's, that's a loop that many people get stuck in. Yeah. How, I asked Erica this too, how do you manage travel, book tour, all that stuff with also, you know, being chronically ill at the same time? Food is the hardest part. At the airport, they don't have anything that's really very good for me to eat. And right. there's this little, I was just in Chicago last week and I'm staring at this like beautiful deep dish pizza and I'm thinking sort of like I'm in Chicago, so I may as well eat it, you know? So it's very easy to make bad decisions on the road. 
Um, and those bad decisions then bite you uh, mm -hmm. later on. So one of the things that I've learned is it's really helpful to make sure that I plan times that I'm going to eat. So most of the time, flights tend to overlap with mealtimes. So I try and work around that, mm -hmm. things like that. Um, also, sleeping as much as possible is a huge part of it. And making sure that you're getting good sleep is a huge part of it. Um, and keeping yourself as healthy as possible. Planes are like an incubator for everything oh, bad. Um, so taking as much vitamin C, supporting your immune system as much as possible has been a huge part of it. Um, but also on the tour, it was invaluable to have Erica there because we could sort of check each other mm -hmm. in terms of what was a good idea, what was a bad idea. Um, if somebody was really tired, the other person was able to sort of create room for that person to take a rest or slow down. Um, so that was really, really helpful as well. Um, I find traveling with normal people who don't have limitations like that very stressful. It can be really stressful for yeah. sure. Um, and a lot, a lot of the travel has either just been with Erica or alone. Um, so that's been a, a huge benefit because you can control more when you're, when you're by yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, but I also think being as vocal as possible about it, um, about what you need and about how you can take care of yourself. Other people want to be able to help, but sometimes they don't always know how. So if you let them know how, um, like when I get to my, your house aunt who I'm staying with, I'm going to need to take a nap as soon as I get there. Like if I say that up front, it's not disappointing that I'm not right. sitting down to have four glasses of wine. They're going to understand that I like need to go and take a nap. Right. But I have to, I have to communicate that for them to know that they're not just going to somehow incite that from my brain. Mm -hmm. Uh, do you want to talk about how you're doing now? Sure. I've been doing okay. The Since the tour, I have not been close to where I was before, um, which is not surprising. Um, this entire experience has been super stressful, and stre stress is a huge trigger for me. Mm -hmm. um, so the holidays and immediately following the holidays were pretty difficult. I was having a lot of new not new, but uh, re-emerging neurological problems, especially with my speech, which is always very, very scary for me and a huge red flag. Especially um, when you have to like travel around and talk to people. Right. Um, so you don't want to sound like an idiot when you're doing an interview or... <laughs> it's know. okay. I do it all the time, but uh, I get to edit myself oh, later. Yeah, so true. I sound like I don't actually talk like uh, William Shatner, which <laughs> I do a lot of the time. Uh, so that was extremely scary, but I've been working a lot... Um, on integrative health and how I can support my body so that it can do a lot of the work by itself. And I've discovered that I have a whole other host of problems um, that are likely caused by the Lyme, mm -hmm. um, as well as some genetic issues that have just always been around and have been contributing to a lot of um, this whole battle from, from the very beginning. Yeah, and I think that's something that's really underappreciated. Um, I, the rheumatologist that diagnosed me with EDS uh, also sees a lot of Lyme patients Obvi for obvious reasons. Like a lot of Lyme patients wind up at rheumatologists and she sees a lot of EDS patients. And she said that um, the EDS patients that have had Lyme are all sorts of fucked up in ways that the people who just had Lyme or who just had EDS had that like aren't. Right. Yeah. yeah. And there's a huge, um, the, the genetic component of, of, 
all of our existences is amazing and mm-hmm. goes very and a total far. fucking mystery. We have oh, yeah. no idea what's going on there. Um, but learning a little bit about that has been helpful for me. Um, and yeah, I, I really want to get to a place, and and I don't know if this is like totally possible for me, but I would really like to be able to get to a place where I can control um, flares with as much natural treatment as possible um because the aggressive antibiotic treatment has created a number of other things that i'm still dealing with today um that have have been very difficult as well um so i'd like to get to a place where i can focus on natural remedies and i'm hoping to be moving farther in that direction um but it's a process and if if something really bad comes up i'm not going to be taking my supplements i'm going to have to pursue a different route and Mm -hmm. it's just um a matter of being as honest with myself and checking in with myself regularly to say, where are you really at and where do you want to be at? And um, it's probably closer to far, farther from where I want than I can admit. Right. <laughs> now, checking in is, is important. Where am I at now? You know, there's, what's her face? I think Pima Chodron, she has a book called Start Where You Are. Um, yeah. And the other thing that I talk to people about a lot is like, you have to be really relative with yourself. Mm-hmm. So if yesterday you couldn't get out of bed and today you're out of bed for three hours, you're better. Mm-hmm. It's a huge win. It's a huge win, right? Yeah. And it's not a huge win in like from where you want to be ultimately, but you have to give yourself victories mm-hmm. along the road. In the same way, if I notice that I'm t- entirely functional, have no problems traveling for three weeks, and then do one flight and I'm floored, I need to pay attention to that as like, wow, my body is saying something and maybe I've taken four steps back and then, than where I was a couple days ago. And I think if we're just very aware of relative to where in, in at one moment in time, are we better or are we worse? Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't feel like as quite a huge mountain to have to climb. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, Allie, thank you so much for talking to me. This thank was a delight. You. Yeah, it was so much fun. I'm really happy to be here. Thanks for listening to this episode of In Sickness and In Health. There are plenty of links to learn more about the stuff we talk about in this episode on the show page. And of course, you can learn plenty more from Allie's book, Suffering the Silence, Chronic Lyme Disease in an Age of Denial. As always, find resources and more from us at insicknesspod.com and on social media at insicknesspod. Find the Suffering the Silence online community at sufferingthesilence.com, on Instagram and Facebook as Suffering the Silence, on Twitter at STS Together, and get the book wherever books are sold. This week, I had the pleasure of recording a podcast with a couple friends of mine from college. They're currently working on a show called Keanu Club, where they are watching every Keanu Reeves movie chronologically and producing a podcast episode for each one. Prior to this, they watched every Nicolas Cage movie for a podcast called Cage Club. My episode won't be out until later this month, but it gave me a chance to rewatch Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, which is one of my favorite movies of all time. But Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey is still higher on my personal favorite list for what it's worth. Anyway, the reason that I'm talking to you about this here is... Because the sweet, stupid lightness of Bill and Ted and their message of be excellent to each other and party on dudes was exactly what I needed in this week full of so much sadness and anger. 
I woke Sunday to the news of what had happened in Orlando and was crushed by the news. I can't really summon much more to say about it because I have so many feelings about this whole thing and I'm not really done processing all of the information. Uh, It's something that hits really close to home and close to the people that I love and at the same time adds to the growing fear that I carry that we are not safe even in our most sacred spaces. Um, So today, more than ever, please don't forget to be excellent to yourselves and each other and party on dudes, ladies, and non-binary folks. (laughs) 